0: 6 We come to the end of this letter that the apostle Paul wrote to the first century churches in Galatia. And the purpose of the letter was and is to make clear what is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we stand in, which is that A person is justified or counted righteous and approved by God simply by trusting in Jesus Christ and Him crucified as the one who died on the cross in our place and for our sins. That explanation of the gospel became necessary because some people were teaching that you need more than faith in Christ. You also need your own works and in that case it was circumcision that was what was being taught. You needed to do that and keep other laws. Only then could you be counted righteous. And so having defended the gospel and its implications on life, Paul now brings the letter to a close. So would you follow along with me as we read in God's word from Galatians six eleven to eighteen? And then we'll pray. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. We bless you, Heavenly Father, for your mercy in making known to us the way of salvation. In your providence, it was false teaching that led to this clear explanation of the true way to life through Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for your wisdom and for how you use even evil to bring about good. Today we experience the good of the, of the gospel, written down and preserved, and now communicated again through this text. And we ask you for ears to hear and hearts to receive the encouragement that you intend. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> what will you do with the gospel that's the question we're left with at the end of this letter. What will you build your life on? What's going to be the guiding principle that gives you hope for this life and for life after death? The answer to that is no small matter. Jesus said there's a narrow way that leads to life, and there's a wide way that leads to destruction. And the the difference between the two ways is, what gospel do you actually believe? Who is your real Savior? When Paul closes this letter, we have reminders about about how intensely he felt about this, how concerned he was that the church hear and believe the true gospel. He says in verse 11, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. That might sound like an insignificant passing comment. Some people take it to mean that Paul had poor eyesight, and so he's explaining why his penmanship is so bad. Well, Paul is not concerned about what people think of his writing. What he wants them to know is, I am writing this thing to you myself. This comes from my heart. We see his emotion again in verse 17. He says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Here's a man who has physical scars on his body for preaching the gospel. If you read in Acts 14, 13 and 14, when he was preaching the gospel in the churches of Galatia, in Lystra, they, they stoned him. They pummeled him with rocks for preaching the gospel, left him for dead. He says, I've got marks, the marks of Jesus. And it troubles me that false teachers are leading you astray from that gospel that I preached. Because there is only one gospel. And his hope at the end of this letter is, believe that gospel. Don't let these guys cause any more trouble. I don't want their influence in your life. So as he closes the letter, he leaves them and us now with the question, what will you do With the gospel, will your hope be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Or will you look to something else that will not lead to life in the end? That's what's before us. It's no small matter. So here's how Paul leads us through it. We can divide up his comments into two parts. First is an explanation about why some people reject the gospel. He he has in mind these false teachers, but it applies to more than them. What are the reasons why people would dismiss this true way to life? That's the first half. That's in verses 12 and 13. But he doesn't leave us with the negative. He also closes with the positive. He gives us reasons to embrace the true gospel in verses 14 to 16. So that's going to be our outline this morning. Two points. Why do people reject the gospel, and why should we embrace the gospel? Let's start with the first question. Why do people reject the gospel? There are lots of reasons, of course. But Paul has in mind two main categories that were definitely functioning in these false teachers, and in those who are starting to go along with them. And they're also, I think, the way, the reasons that most people still today reject the gospel. The first one is fear. Listen to verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Did you catch that? Those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, those are the teachers saying to the churches that faith in Christ is not sufficient to be saved. You also must be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And why do they say such things? What's their motive for preaching this different gospel? He says, it's only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They know if they teach the gospel that Paul preached, they might be pummeled with rocks. And nobody wants that. Nobody wants scars And to be left for dead. So they believe and teach a different gospel that won't get them into trouble. And it won't get them into trouble if they tell people that they need to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. Now that was for two reasons in their context. One is that at the time it was mainly the zealous Jews who were doing the persecuting. That's who threw the rocks at Paul. It was Jews. It wasn't Gentiles. It wasn't the Romans. So they're very zealous. They're the ones who stoned Stephen. They're the ones who put Christ on the cross. So, so if that's the background you're coming from, and these Jewish teachers are coming from that background, that's their peer group who will turn on them if they don't teach circumcision and the law of Moses. But the other reason is because Judaism was an accepted religion in the Roman Empire at the time. It was a live and let live situation. As long as you don't cause any trouble, you can have your your temple, you can have your sacrifices, you can have your laws, but Christianity is a different thing. If you're starting to say you don't need to do those things, if you start to look less and less Jewish and more and more different, like a follower of this Christ who was crucified by the Romans, that will get you into trouble. So fearing that, they say, I'm not going to preach that. I'm going to preach something that looks like what everybody likes. Fear. persecution is still a reason that many people reject the gospel today. That was exactly my reason when people first started bringing the gospel to me in college. Each of my first three semesters, I'm amazed at the patience of God. (laughs) Every semester, people would come to my dorm room for three semesters in a row and share the gospel with me. They'd knock on my door, they'd say, Um, hey, could we speak to you about Jesus Christ? And I didn't want them to, but I I loved approval so much I didn't want to say no. So I said, sure, come on in. And then I'd let them give me their speech. And then at the end of the speech, they would always have an invitation. Do you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior right now? And I always said no. (laughs) Why did I say no? because I loved the approval of man. And I knew, if I follow Christ, that I'm going to become that Jesus freak, that strange person who maybe has lashed into something like a cult that is out of touch with reality, and you've gotten all religious and fanatical on me, and, and that was going to turn my peer group away from me. And I didn't want that. So I kept saying no. Fear is one of the reasons we reject the gospel. And I would say it's also another reason that people turn away from the gospel after they seem to have accepted it. Fear of persecution, fear of going against the grain, fear of going against our culture. It's one of the points that Jesus made in the parable of the sower. In the parable, a sower, a farmer, he throws seeds on all kinds of ground. Some of it falls on a hard path, some of it falls into thorny places, some of it falls on good soil, some of it falls into rocky soil, and some of it grows and some of it doesn't. Here's what happens to the seed that falls into the rocky soil. Jesus said, immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Then he explained the parable this way. He said, the seed is the word of the kingdom. It's the gospel. It's the way of salvation. And the rocky ground is a certain kind of person, a certain kind of soil in their heart, a person who seems to believe the gospel. But Jesus says, when tribulation or persecution arises, on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So this is the person who hears the gospel and it looks like something happened there. They started going to church. They learned how to pray. They got Christian friends. But then as soon as following Jesus cost them something, as soon as they realize somebody's going to hate me for believing what's in the Bible, then they're out. They're saying, that's not what I signed up for. And they want to follow some other gospel. Fear is a reason people reject the gospel. Another reason is pride. That's verse 13. Even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. It's another description of the motivations of the false teachers. They want to boast in the flesh of the people whom they convinced to get circumcised. In other words, if they can get people to do that, then they can say, you see, they agree with us. They see the wisdom and the truth of what we're saying, this gospel we're preaching, that they need to obey the law to be forgiven their sins. And since they're so smart to see that, to see that we have the real thing, you should also follow us. You should look to us. They had the attitude that Job charged his accusers with. In Job 12, he said, No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. Never mind the fact that they didn't keep the law themselves, Paul says. As he said in chapter 5, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. Like If you're going to go that route, if you're going to go the law route, you have to do the whole thing. No misses ever in any command. He says they don't do that. Nobody does that. No one is saved by keeping the law because we can't do it well enough. But that's what they teach. And when they get somebody to listen to them, to do what they say, to go along with their prescriptions, it strokes their pride. People listen to me. I have many followers on Instagram. Validates their importance. Pride is the reason many people preach a false gospel because it draws attention to them rather than to Christ. But we should add that pride is also a reason people believe a false gospel, particularly the one that says you have something to do with it. You you make this happen. Because if the gospel that they're preaching is if you do the right things... Then you are righteous, then you are God's child, then you'll get his blessings. And if that's the gospel, if that's how you get into heaven, what's the natural assumption? I did the right things. Me. Myself. It's because of me. And there's this pride in that. You know, other people, they haven't figured it out. They're too wicked. I'm holier than them. I got it. I was smart enough to see it. That, that all comes back to self, my self-righteousness. My righteousness was part of what got me into heaven. You know, sure, I'll say Jesus did 90%, but I had my 10% too. A gospel that says you can get yourself into heaven somehow appeals to our proud hearts. Our own goodness gives us something to boast about even if we say Jesus did most of it, but I also did my part. But the real gospel and the offense of the cross is that salvation must be all of Christ and not your own doing. It requires the humility of saying with the old hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, Simply to the cross I cling, Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We're gonna sing that as our closing song from Rock of Ages. Salvation isn't the result of our own doing, but it comes through our believing that we need a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. Fear and pride, two main reasons people reject the gospel. So is fear or pride holding you back from fully embracing Christ and the cross functionally, daily? Is it, is it, is it the thing that you live believing? that He's? I mean, do you believe him, or do you fear, or, or, or is there pride that makes you not want to go there We struggle with things like that, but we have to receive all from Jesus' nail pierced hand. Jesus wants you to hear good news this morning, whatever your struggle is. If He exposes the sin in our hearts, it's only because He wants us to hear His gracious and merciful solution for our sins. And that brings us to the second question that Paul addresses in his closing statements Why should we embrace the gospel? like what's so good about it that you could be thrown at you have rocks thrown at you and you'd still do it anyway what, what's so good about this gospel it comes down to this we should embrace the gospel with joy because it is amazingly good news that salvation is through faith and not through your righteous works That is amazing. It's freeing to know that Christ saves us, that we don't save ourselves. That's where he's going with verses 14 to 16. Let's walk through the good news there. In 14, Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So instead of boasting in yourself for being such a righteous person or that other people think you're a great righteous person, we can boast in the cross. We have reason to make much of, that's what boasting is, make much of Christ and what He has done for us. We can sing His praises. Because, as John Newton said at the end of his life, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. To know and feel that Jesus, God's beloved Son, the sinless one, took the blame and the punishment for your sins on the cross. To know that. You were without hope and without God in this world, according to Ephesians 2, but that Christ came to seek and to save you, the lost, at the cost of his life. That is something we can sing praises about. We can make much of Jesus when that lands on our soul. Greater love has no one than this that one lay it down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul. When you really think about what Jesus did to bring you to God, to give you a future and a hope, to rescue you from the futility of this world and from your deadness and your trespasses, then you have reason to boast. And you can embrace the gospel wholeheartedly. So Paul starts by saying, if you're going to boast in something, boast about the great sacrificial love of Christ on the cross. And if that is your boast, if that's in your heart, that's resident there, and you're you're feeding off of that, finding joy in that, it changes your day-to-day life. That's what he says. He says that it is by the cross that the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, When your boast is in the Savior, when that's what excites you and you want to talk about and point to, it frees you from needing anything else in the world to validate your significance or to give you ultimate happiness. You have a hope that isn't tied to that anymore. It's not tied to the world You don't need anybody's approval. You don't need stuff. (laughs) You don't need health and prosperity and respect and everything that we naturally think, I need to have that in order to have joy. No, Jesus becomes enough. He, He was crucified that I might be crucified to the world and not need it anymore because I have him. And that's enough. And all the promises of God that are, yes, in Him. The future and a hope, the presence of God with me favorably now, caring for me as a father to His son or daughter. I have that. So what do I need if I if I have that? You can have real joy in Christ, not just in circumstantial happiness. So, Factually, though, even as a genuine believer in Christ, we don't always live in the good of that, do we? I don't. That's a struggle. We're still prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's reality. But if you're in Christ, you really don't need the world's stuff anymore. <laughs> even if you're still prone to live that way. Christ is with you by His Spirit, and you have a heavenly inheritance that is unfading, will not pass away, reserved in heaven for you. You won't miss out on it. You won't miss out on the best. It's already been given to you. You just have to live long enough and pass through death and you're going to completely enjoy the whole thing forever. There's more good news here. Paul continues by bringing us back to to the substance of the gospel in verse 15, the thing he's been talking about at length in this letter. Here's the heart of the matter. The difference between the false gospel that strokes our egos and the real gospel that's received by the humble is in verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now this is real freedom. This is good news. Here's, here's what he's saying. Nothing you do or don't do counts For anything in obtaining God's forgiveness and His blessing for all eternity. (laughs) Let that land on you. Nothing you do or don't do counts for anything towards your justification before God, your right standing, your acceptance, your approval with Him. It doesn't count. In their context, the issue is, do I need to get circumcised or not to be one of God's people? And Paul says, it's neither one of those things. (laughs) It doesn't count. But the principle isn't limited to circumcision. He has argued in this letter that none of your moral actions are what God looks to in order to accept you. Now, why is that good news? Well, think about it this way. What if it did count? What if your hope in life and death really does depend on how well you love your neighbor? Or how often you serve in the church? Or Are you wise with your money? Do you speak only that which is edifying and good and right all the time? Or do you never get a speeding ticket? Or have you never made any bad choices in your life? What if those things actually counted towards your salvation? Well, we would have no hope. We've blown it. We can't get there that way. And you know what that life feels like if that's what your hope is in. There's a heaviness to it. There's this weight of trying to be good enough. There's this guilt that never goes away. There's this constant sense, I have to do better or there's no hope for me. And, and some of us live like that. I lived like that. It's still a temptation. But here's the good news. <laughs> None of that counts. <laughs> Salvation isn't dependent on what you do or don't do. It Do you know what does count? Becoming a new creation through faith in Christ as savior. That's all that counts. When you humble yourself and trust Christ as one who died for your sins, it's a rebirth by the Spirit. It's the creation of a new you. It's the creation of a saved and forgiven you that is permanent and is completely separate from your doing. Oh, there will be deeds that come. There will be obedience that's going to come. But none of that matters for your justification. None of that gets you in the door. None of that makes God approve of you. We are approved in Christ and His righteousness, which we receive by faith. It's a new creation. You become a different person. You become no longer enslaved to sin, no longer separated from god, but joined to him through christ. that's the free gift of god. it changes you from within. it gives you this new inner relish. it makes you say the world is crucified to me. <laughs> and i'm and i to the world. like i have a different look on life completely. i don't need all this stuff. I just need Christ. It changes that from within. You have this new desire, and that new desire is what makes you see a command in the Bible and say, I want to do that. (laughs) That I like. (laughs) That's a way for me to boast about my Savior when I follow in His steps and do what He did. And I'm all about boasting in Him. But that comes from within. That comes from the Holy Spirit whom God gives to us through faith. Paul ends with this in verse 16. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Walk by this rule. It's another way of saying, live by the truth of this gospel and put no trust in your own doing or not doing of things. It's you living by faith. It's you walking by the Spirit. It's you being the new creation. And if that's you, here's one thing you can be sure of. Peace and mercy will be upon you. They are upon you. God's peace, God's mercy is upon you. Peace is getting what you don't deserve, the blessings and favor of God. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, the punishment for your sins, because that was placed on Christ. Peace and mercy are the privileges that are upon every believer in Jesus. They belong to you on your good days and on your bad days. And for eternity... And that's good news. I should say something about the Israel of God that Paul mentions here because there's a lot of attention on Israel recently because of the war in the Middle East. He says, Peace and mercy be upon them, those who follow this rule, and upon the Israel of God. Without going into detail, he doesn't mean everyone who belongs to ethnic Israel, the physical descendants of Jacob. He can't mean that because Paul already pronounced a curse in chapter 1 on the Jewish background teachers who are upsetting the faith of the Gentiles. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. He's saying that about Jews who are doing this. So it isn't the ethnic descendants of of. Jacob, that he's talking about when he says the Israel of God. No, the Israel of God is another way to describe all who walk by this rule peace and mercy upon all who walk by this rule of trusting Christ as Savior. All such people can be described as the Israel of God. This is a Jewish benediction, but Paul is applying it to both Jew and Gentile, both circumcised and uncircumcised believers in Christ. The church is the Israel of God, upon whom is peace and mercy. It's the same point he made in chapter 3. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And to be in Christ Jesus through faith is to live now and forever with peace and mercy upon you. God's great blessings because all of the punishment was poured out on his son. Let me just say a few things in closing, three takeaways from this passage in this letter. First, what gospel you believe is a matter of life and death? It is. Paul wrote this letter personally out of a sense of urgency and a troubled heart because the only gospel that saves is faith alone in Christ alone. But a person might say, well, what's the big deal? Why be a stickler with details? I mean, isn't a gospel of faith plus your righteous deeds close enough to a gospel of faith in Christ alone? What's wrong with that? As long as we have Jesus somewhere in our belief system, isn't it good, good enough? I mean, God will say, yeah, well, you had Jesus in there. Well, if there was something more or less Than faith in Jesus Christ alone and Him crucified? Why did Paul even bother writing this letter? Why was he willing to risk death for this gospel if there were other ways? It's because there are no other ways. There is no other gospel except to believe in Jesus Christ and Him crucified and not put your hope in your works. And that's why we need to stay true to it. So we have a real salvation to enjoy and something to give, something to point to. Second, the true gospel is offensive to our fallen nature. It just is. Now, it's true that Christians can be be offensive for the wrong reasons. (laughs) We can be very bad examples of Christ through self-righteousness, through a holier-than-thou attitude, through smugness communicated in social media posts that communicate, shame on you heathens for not being like me. We can be offensive for all the wrong reasons, and none of that should be a part of our life. If we are saved by grace alone, then we have nothing to boast in about ourselves. We need humility. But the gospel itself will still be offensive to many. The false teachers knew that which is why they didn't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And because the message confronts our pride, it exposes our idolatries. It says, you are a failure, (laughs) and you need Christ to rescue you. And that doesn't sit very well, does it? We want to think, oh, I'm not that bad. I'm not dead in my trespasses. Like Ephesians 2 says, I'm better than that. You know, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be brought in under the curve. I mean, you don't, God doesn't expect perfection, right? It offends us to hear, no, you're dead, you're a failure, you deserve to be damned. That doesn't sound good. That offends the pride. That's offensive, but that's the reality. Which, and until we embrace that reality, we can't boast in the cross. Because we think, well, I had another way. It just is offensive. So don't be surprised when it doesn't sound like good news to others. It didn't sound like good news to me when I heard it. Maybe not to you either. Don't assume that you're doing something wrong if you point people to Jesus and they don't want to have anything to do with that. But that leads to the last point. The gospel is so good, we can bear a little suffering for it. (laughs) You might not get actual scars from following Jesus. But not all persecution is physical. It's also being reviled and spoken of as evil It's being shut out of opportunities because you're a Christian. It's being excluded from friend groups. You might even lose your job if you don't agree with some company policy that forces you to go along with something that is against God's will. Those things also can happen. But we can bear it if we keep alive in our hearts that peace and mercy are upon you. God's peace. God's blessings, God's promises, this inheritance that lasts forever, that he's with you every day, every minute to help you get through whatever, and that he loves you. When we keep that alive in our heart, we can say, okay, I can handle it. I can handle some hard things because I have Christ. There's a pastor from the 1800s named Charles Simeon who said something like this, and I'm just going to close with it, with what he said, as an encouragement to believers. He said, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice. In the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death, let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your mercy for sending Christ to the cross to die in our place and for our sins, to give us a future and a hope, to give us the promise that we're never alone, that you'll never forsake us, that we're new creations, who are heading to a renewed creation forever. Sustain us in these things this week. Lift us up, Lord, and to see above all the fray, above all the news, above all the things that bother us, your smiling face beckoning us to glory, assuring us of your sovereign, loving presence. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.